welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 19 on Alice's Adventures. Uh, and I am uh, uh, excited as we continue to move through to the end. We're coming to the uh, second to last substantive chapter of the book. There's still so much happening in this book. We still have another delightful poem, uh, uh, delightfully long poem, uh, doubtless to Alice's chagrin, um, uh, that is uh, coming up here in this next chapter with the White Knight. Um, and uh, we have a, a great deal more here to go through. Uh, just a, a couple very quick notes here before we begin. First, uh, just a reminder that our first, um, our first uh, 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 regional moot of the year is coming up. Our first regional moot of the spring, of the spring season, is coming up uh, fairly quickly in January. We're just over a month away from that now. Osmoot down in Australia, going to be great fun. Um, uh, of course, this one is going to take a little bit more than usual uh, uh, levels of uh, time conversion, right, to figure out which time and indeed which day uh, it's going to be happening, you know, it's going to be happening on. The schedule should be posted very soon. Um, so I encourage people to sign up. If you can't make it all the way down to Australia, you can still attend remotely. Though, again, as I say, attending remotely is going to be a little bit more challenging than it often is given the, uh, it's a 15 hour time difference from the East coast. So, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a good deal of shifting involved there, but we'll figure it out. Um, and, uh, I also wanted to point out if you go to the Signum press section of our BlackBerry system, uh, go to BlackBerry, you can find BlackBerry in many places on Signum's uh, Signum's webpage. Um, and you can find, we have our first book available by subscription. Serena's sh uh, collection of short stories uh, is being published serially right now. And so you can sign up for that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very inexpensive to subscribe. A subscription is only $2 a month. Um, and uh, you can get the stories as they are released, which is really fun. All right, let us get back into Alice's adventures. So we had just gotten to the lion and the unicorn, and we had just come to the part where I need help. Um, so the old song. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown, some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Now... One thing I think is important to point out is that Alice herself does not seem to understand what this means. That is to say, Alice seems to be taking this song in a very similar way to how she took the nursery rhymes about Tweedledum and Tweedledee or Humpty Dumpty. That is to say, she is, of course, now entering with the assumption that the events that are described in the song are going to actually happen in Looking Glass Land around her, right? That, you know, that there um, should actually be um, a lion and a unicorn fighting uh, each other. She is unsurprised to hear, and indeed immediately supplies fighting for the crown, right? As soon as she hears that the lion and the unicorn are fighting, um, because of course they are. What else would they be fighting for? Right. And then she uh, uh, remembering that now she has a f her follow up question. Does the one that wins get the crown? Right. That is, she herself is trying to understand better what exactly the point 
of the song is, right? Um, are they fighting for the crown in the sense of like, the, does the one that wins gets the crown, right? She seems to be asking for sort of clarification uh, on that point. Um, I don't, the reason I talk about, you know, the reason I'm approaching the Lion and the Unicorn song saying I don't understand it. Um, I mean, it's not like I understood the Tweedledum and Tweedledee song, right? Like, why are they obsessed with the rattle and, like, what does a crow have to do with anything? And, um, uh, anyway, you know, like, all these things. I mean, not to mention Humpty Dumpty is, of course, to to me, growing up, you know, uh, in America, more familiar to me, the Tweedledum and Tweedledee nursery rhyme had, was not included in any of my nursery rhyme books. I was, in fact, still read nursery rhyme books when I was a kid, um, but I didn't read that one. Humpty Dumpty, however, is familiar enough to me. Um, and, of course, it's sufficiently familiar that the nonsense of it, or rather, like, uh, like why should the, all the king's horses and all the king's men be the ones who are attempting to patch up Humpty Dumpty right after he falls off the wall. Like, even apart from obvious questions like, what is he doing up on top of the wall in the first place? So I wasn't troubled by any of these things. Why am I troubled about the lion and the unicorn? Because the lion and the unicorn verse uh, triggers my allegory senses, right? Like, there's something going on here. Uh, something tells me there is something going on here in this song that I don't understand. Um, some gave them white bread, some gave them brown. Like, I, 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 my instincts tell me there are meanings there that somebody probably closer to the, uh, you know, time of the writing of the song would understand that I don't. Um, and so, so I'm just kind of puzzled. Now, again, I'm slightly reassured by the fact that, um, Alice herself doesn't seem to understand, but for the rest of this chapter, I have that sort of uncomfortable feeling, um, that there's a joke going on that I'm missing because of course the, the rest of the song is, is, or the, the rest of the chapter rather just literalizes the song. Right there, you know, they're like waiting, you know, when is the white bread and the brown bread going to come in? Right. And of course, the, the messenger, Hatta, who's going to be is eating a slice of bread, is uh, is eating, you know, some of the some of the, the, the bread in question. Right. That's where he got it. Um, and of course, Alice is going to be trying to slice the plum cake, which is alluded to in the song. Um, and then, of course, the drums are going to come in very literally. So all of this, um, all of this seems... Uh, you know, again, it's taken very literally, but I feel like that's a joke. I feel like that's a joke, and I feel like it's a joke I'm not getting. Um, and this is made the more tantalizing for me in the fact that the lion and the unicorn fighting for the crown seems to have an obvious signification on the one hand. That is, like, categorically, I feel like, okay, it's obvious what realm we're in here, and that is the realm of British politics, right? I mean, we have this, after all, right? Um, this is the coat of arms of the royal house. This is uh, the, the, 
the one which came down from the Tudors. Uh, and of course, you've, there, there you've got them. There's the lion and the unicorn and the crown. Now, puzzlingly, they each have a crown also, right? Um, at um, Right, the lion's already wearing a crown. The unicorn has a crown around its neck, though it's also chained up. Um, and then you've got the big crown on top. And then there's another lion on top of the crown wearing another crown, right? So there you go. And lots of lions involved in the coats of arms there on the shield, on, the, on that quartered shield. Um, notice the, uh, uh, the shamrocks and the Scottish thistles and the Tudor roses, uh, down along the bottom there as well. Um, so anyway, yeah, <laughs> JJ says, why doesn't the harp get a crown? Surely you must be joking. Um, <laughs> that can't be a serious question. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. Okay. Um, so, um, the lion, the unicorn, the combination of lion, unicorn, and crown. I mean, I'm like, okay, politics. We're talking politics here, right? Um, does it still have any, is it purely historical by, you know, the Victorian period? Was there some way in which this song retained any kind of uh, sort of topical or political relevance during the late 19th century? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. JJ, exactly. The harp is Irish. Exactly. That's, that's, that's why I was saying you must be joking to think there's a crown on it, right? Um, no. Um, that's, that is, that, that would be rather untrue to the history of, of Ireland's role in this particular, uh, uh, this, this particular arena. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> yes, JJ, I was just noticing, uh, that there are like stripes on my shirt that you can see through. I think that's kind of fun. Um, uh, yeah, I was just wearing the new shirt that my wife got me and forgot there were green stripes in it. It's, it's okay. Um, <laughs> yes, you can you can see the Signum logo right through me. <clears throat> I'm um, I'm uh, yeah, I'm just I'm like the ghost of Christmas presents to, present tonight. Um, yeah, yeah, Gerald, I was wondering about that too. Um, maybe it's more like Ring Around the Rosie. Um, an old rhyme, which of course was originally about the the, the plague, um, about the Black Death, um, but which doesn't retain that significance uh, moving forward. Probably, uh, I think that's very possible. Um, yeah. So um, the somebody was suggesting. Oh yes, uh, Majid was suggesting uh, on YouTube. Um, that it could potentially have to do with, uh, or be, or have been initially inspired during the Jacobite revolutions in the 18th century, um, the conflicts between England and Scotland, though it was more complicated than that, of course, as it usually is. Um, but, uh, anyway, 
anyway. Um, so, I guess it doesn't matter. Maybe Lewis Carroll isn't making a joke. Maybe he is just accepting this. But the other thing that bugs me, the other thing that bugs me is that it's introduced differently. The others are nursery rhymes, and this is an old song, right? So it, it kind of stands apart. Um, <laughs> I love that connection, Tarlonio, but I, I doubt that's actually in play, but that's kind of fun. Tarlonio, of course, is pointing out uh, that the Jacobite, the two major Jacobite revolutions, you know, uh, uh, you know, revolts um, in the 18th century were in support of the old pretender and the young pretender, uh, respectively. And Alice, of course, uh, is the new pretender uh, in a very different way. Um, I love that very much. Um, but, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, it would be pretty indirect. Um, Alice is a pretender, though. She's a different kind of pretender. Not a pretender to the crown, but um, uh, but that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so if there's nothing, there's nothing. I would love to discover. Maybe someday I will discover the joke. Maybe he's not making a particular joke. But see, like, what was the historical significance of the white bread and brown and plum cake? I can't help but think that in the 1870s they would have remembered better what this was referring to than I do, in any case. Which is almost nothing, I'm guessing, right? Um, and, uh... And, he, and then there would probably be... So even if it's not like a current... Um, a current hotbed topic, you know, at the time. He could still be making a joke about it. Mighty Felix does point out that she is about to be queen. She's about to become queen. And she's, at this point, actively aspiring. I mean, she's sort of wanted to be a queen the whole time, right? But she she can taste it now. She's only one square away from being made queen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, notice the king's continued... continued harping on her words. Would you be good enough to stop a minute just to get one's breath again. Now here, once more, this is a classic example of Alice using a figure of speech which does not mean exactly what it says, right? Um, because it's a, it's an illusion, right? You're skipping a word. Um, to stop for a minute, of course, is what she means. But it has become customary to say, um, would you be good enough to stop a minute? 
right? So the two expressions that the king is playing on is, would he be good enough? Uh, and would he stop for a minute? Um, and the king, taking her quite literally as he has been, I'm good enough, only I'm not strong enough. You see, a minute goes by so fearfully quick, you might as well try to stop a bandersnatch. Now, the king, this is the king's favorite comparison, right? His uh, evocation of the bandersnatch, which is a fascinating little piece of like internal intertextuality here, right? The bandersnatch, you'll remember, um, we're only given two pieces of context to understand what the Bandersnatch means at all, right? One is the general, it's of course from the Jabberwocky poem. Um, one is the general context in which it's raised. It is in the list of creatures um, that the, uh, the, 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 the boy, right, is being urged, um, the, the Beamish boy, you remember, is being urged to shun, right? There are several dangerous creatures that he should not go near, and the Bandersnatch is one of them. That's one piece of context we get to have some idea of the Bandersnatch. The second, of course, is the adjective that it gets, frumious. Um, so he's supposed to shun the frumious Bandersnatch. Uh, and that doesn't sound great, uh, but we're not really quite sure, 100% sure, what that means. And of course, I guess I should have added the third piece of context is merely uh, the sound of the word itself, bandersnatch. Um, the word, that, that it contains the word snatch sounds dangerous too, right? But um, you might as well try to stop a bandersnatch. Doesn't convey much. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a sentence which is leaning on a particularly thin reed right? Uh, because we have such very, we have so very little to go on. And notice how we're not only being invited to sort of, he's not only, King is not only appealing to the idea of the Bandersnatch as some kind of, um, you know, not ideal, but extreme, right? You might as well try to stop a Bandersnatch, right? Like as a, 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 an existed, an, an, an example of an exaggerated, absurd suggestion, right? Um, are bander snatches particularly hard to stop from doing what, like we would never, I mean, we would have no, would have had no reason to suspect so. Right. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> bander snatches have made their way into many video games in the last 40 years. Uh, Tarlonio, um, I remember laughing when I first noticed um, the... I, I didn't count, but a fair number of the creatures mentioned in um, the Jabberwocky poem made it into uh, 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 Bard's Tale. First video game, one of the, well, not the first video game I ever played, but one of my favorite video games of the 80s. Um, there were totally Bandersnatches uh, in that... Uh, in that game, um, as well as a Jabberwock, by the way, it was really dangerous. Um, but um, anyhow, notice what he um, 
Uh, notice what he accomplishes here, however. What he accomplishes uh, is, he, that is Lewis, what Lewis accomplishes is he appeals back to the Bandersnatch in a way which, again, we, we have no context to even like understand or expect it to be in this sentence. But now we have more, right? Because of the way that the king has brought, has, you know, so now we're, he is having done that thought experiment where he wrote this poem in which he's inventing all of these words and asking us to track, right? With what he's saying, he now can use that as established imaginative vocabulary and he can just throw off references like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm good enough, only I'm not strong enough to stop a minute. I can't stop a minute. They go by so fearfully quick. Okay. Oop, oop, hang on. Okay. So, the lion and the unicorn are done fighting. Then I suppose they'll soon bring the white bread and the brown, Alice ventured to, mark, to remark. It's waiting for him now, said Hatta. This is a bit of it as I'm eating. There was a pause in the fight just then, and the lion and the unicorn sat down, panting, while the king called out, Ten minutes allowed for refreshments! Haya, Haya, and Hatta set to work at once, carrying round trays of white and brown bread. Alice took a piece to taste, but it was very dry. I don't think they'll fight any more today, the king said to Hatta. Go and order the drums to begin. And Hatta went bounding away like a grasshopper. Okay, so one of the things that makes this instance... Now, we've been looking at the instances of the fulfillment of fairy tales, right? Of, of nursery rhymes, rather. Um, as within the context of the story, based on the kind of the, vo the vocabulary that the story has given, as instances of Alice remembering forwards, right? Of her memory within Looking Glass Land, working both ways. It's not just that she is interacting with people like the White Queen who themselves claim that their memories work in multiple ways. We are seeing that as she is interacting with Looking Glass Land, her memory is working in both ways as well. Here, what's different this third time? So we had Tweedledum and Tweedledee was the first time, Humpty Dumpty was the second time, and this is the third. And this third time, Everybody else is in on it. Remember, Humpty Dumpty was not. Humpty Dumpty was uh, actively perplexed by some of her uh, uh, by some of her comments. Right, um, this strange information that she got from somewhere that he can't figure out. Um, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, I think, were seemed a little bit more aware. But when they came to fighting, they were they did not seem to me self aware of the situation. Um, it's not like they were sitting around and expecting the rattle or the crow, right? Um, I mean, Tweedledum, I always forget which one it was. I think it's the point that you're supposed to get them confused, of course, but um, which one it is who discovers the broken rattle and, and says that they must fight. Um, but of course, he certainly acts as if he did not expect to find that there, right? Whereas here, Everybody involved, it seems perfectly clued in. It's not only Alice who is remembering forward, knowing what the future events are going to be, because 
in her memory, she's living backwards and they've already happened within the song. Everybody is, right? I mean, everybody is, it's, it, it has become, in fact, here a public ritual by involving the crown and the king, making it a public, even a ceremonial ritual. It has become something that everyone takes part in. And of course, Hatta here, um, who's eating a bit of the bread, um, is particularly hungry because he's just come from his imprisonment. He's the king's messenger who was sentenced first, uh, condemned second, and has presumably yet to commit the crime. Um, yes, Mighty Felix, you do get the sense uh, that this is a, a nearly daily ritual for them. This is a, this is a, uh, there is nothing strange. Whereas again, presumably Humpty Dumpty doesn't fall off that wall daily. Um, as far as we can tell. But, um, uh, uh, but yeah, so, um, the king's sending Hatta to go and order the drums to begin, right? Like we, it's not just that they're all expecting it to happen, as if Tweedledum and Tweedledee might have been expecting the crow to come, or Humpty Dumpty might have anticipated he might fall off the wall, right? Whereas he was saying there's no chance of it. Um, here, the king is not only expecting that someone is going to drum the lion and the unicorn out of town, um, but he he orders it. Right. He uh, he actually takes part in this. Um, he is himself a routine part of the fulfillment. Again, the fulfillment of it becomes a a public ritual. Everyone here is remembering forward and knows exactly what is supposed to happen. Right. OK. Um, Afterwards, we get some uh, smack talk between the lion and the unicorn. At this moment, the unicorn sauntered by them with his hands in his pockets. I had the best of it this time, he said to the king, just glancing at him as he passed. A little, a little, the, the king replied rather nervously. You shouldn't have run him through with your horn, you know. It didn't hurt him, the unicorn said carelessly, and he was going on when his eye happened to fall upon Alice. He turned round instantly and stood for some time looking at her with an air of the deepest disgust. What is this? he said at last. This is a child, Haya replied eagerly. Haya, sorry. Haya replied eagerly, coming in front of Alice to introduce her and spreading out both his hands toward her in an Anglo-Saxon attitude. We only found it today. It's as large as life and twice as natural. I always thought they were fabulous monsters, said the unicorn. Is it alive? It can talk, said Haya solemnly. The unicorn looked dreamily at Alice and said, Talk, child. Alice could not help her lips curling into a smile as she began. Do you know, I always thought unicorns were fabulous monsters, too. I never saw one alive before. Well, now that we have seen each other, said the unicorn, if you'll believe in me... I'll believe in you. Is that a bargain? Yes, if you like, said Alice. Um, yes. JJ, I was hoping somebody would comment on that. Um, the unicorn has pockets. Now, I 
don't think this is a reference. I'm like, there's nothing on the unicorn that could be, you know, I, I was th thinking if it, try, trying to see if it might be a reference uh, back to the, to the seal, but I don't think so. That unicorn does not have pockets. So I don't think so. Um, Muddy Felix points out, Alice is believing impossible things, just like the White Queen told her she could if she tried, right? If she tried hard enough, if she really applied herself, right, she could believe impossible things. And with training, she could get to the point where the White Queen herself, who can believe five impossible things before breakfast. Exactly. Exactly. Um... But why does the unicorn saunter with his hands in his pockets? It's a very, it's a brief passing, but rather jarring image, isn't it? Why should the unicorn have his hands in his pockets? Why should he have pockets? Why... Even if he did have pockets, how could he saunter? Right? I mean, I don't know what is stranger. Um, that he should have hands, that he should be a biped, that he should be having pockets, that should a unicorn, in fact, be able to walk bipedally, uh, that he would do so with his hands in his pockets? Um... It's, it's it's an extremely odd statement. Um, what it kind of braces us for, it, I think, um, helps. I don't know. I mean, if we're paying attention to that, if we had expectations of the unicorn, like if we thought we knew what that meant or what this looked like, then we're apparently quite wrong. By the way, this is, um, I don't know, I've said this, I've said before that I'm not a huge fan of the illustrations, uh, the traditional illustrations of Alice in Wonderland. I think I would go further. I think I would go further to say I did say this in the Jabberwocky, when we're discussing the Jabberwocky poem, about Jabberwocky specifically. But I think that Alice in Wonderland is a book that really should not be illustrated. I kind of think that illustrations of this book can really only serve... Um, uh, can really only serve to undermine several of the effects that this book are going uh, is 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 going for I, I uh, and that's not even an insult about illustrators it's merely a statement about the kind of things that Lewis Carroll is doing in this book the different ways in which he's challenging our imagination um, are both our conceptions and our visual imagination as well and uh, that he is, um, and I think that any illustrations 
will tend to at least compete with, if not actively undermine, what the book is doing. Um, I mean, I feel like they're they're either going to ruin the jokes or they're going to sway your own... Again, like, I, I mean, I was talking about this with Jabberwocky, like the... with the picture of the slithy toves and such, um, which were given... Humpty Dumpty later tells us what they're like, but I am utterly unconvinced that Humpty Dumpty is correct. Howsoever much authority he claims, and however high m might be the wages that he pays the words, I don't believe him. Um, I, I'm not sure. At, at least I don't believe him about all the stuff, right? I don't think that he's authoritative. And so the way that those illustrations read Humpty Dumpty's glosses back into the poem, I think is terrible. It's a terrible, terrible effect. And here's another one. How do you depict the unicorn? Do you just show him as an anthropomorphized creature with hands in his pockets? Would you show him that show him that way from the beginning? Right? Um, anyway, I... Uh, this is the first hint that the text has given us that he shouldn't just look like a unicorn. It's, I mean, Alice thinks she knows about unicorns. And by the way, um, what do we know about unicorns? What do unicorns like? I mean, if you did meet a unicorn, based on the stories you've read about unicorns, what would you expect them to like? Yeah, maidens, exactly. Young girls. Young girls are exactly what they're most supposed to like. Absolutely. Um, the deepest disgust with which the unicorn greets Alice, right? His eye happened to fall upon Alice. He turned around instantly and stood for some time looking at her with an air of deepest disgust. So that's twice in three paragraphs that Carol has said something about unicorns to surprise us, right? Um, that is not what we would expect from a unicorn, any more than we would expect it to have A, hands, B, pockets, or C, that particular uh, kind of posture. Um, and Haya's description, this is a child. We only found it today. This kind of language describing Alice is uh, a, a little bit uncomfortable. It's as large as life and twice as natural. Remember Tweedledum and Tweedledee and the waxworks? They're talking about her like she's a waxwork. That's just the kind of thing you would say um, if you were looking at a waxwork. Now, so you could say, well, it's only fair. Tweedledum and Tweedledee accused Alice of looking at them as if they were waxworks. And if she thinks they're a waxworks, she should pay. Right? Um, now, the unicorn does ask, is it alive? Right? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so it's not like he's mistaking it for a waxwork. But again, the way that it is being displayed here um, is, um, is interesting. Um, it can talk, said Hea solemnly. Tell me about fabulous creatures. What does that mean? I always thought they were fabulous monsters. What does the word fabulous mean? Because I rather suspect that I rather suspect that that word is meant to be taken quite seriously. Yeah, literally, a fabulous monster is a monster from a fable. Just as a fantastic monster would be a monster from a fantasy, right? If something is fabulous, it literally means... And now, we use that word much more ambiguously. Um, uh my my son was pointing this out in frustration recently. He recently came independently uh, to the observation that the meaning of words changes over time, and almost all words seem to eventually just come to mean either good or bad, vaguely, uh, and to lose their more specific meanings. And I was like, ah, you are not the first person to notice this. Uh, and uh, I read him some parts of... Uh, a couple C.S. Lewis essays on that subject. Um, yeah, J.J. was thinking of C.S. Lewis's articles. I'm like, yes, yes, uh, this is an observation that has been made before. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, now he's completely right, of course. Um, fabulous and fantastic both used to mean something specific, something quite particular. You're saying something more than it's real good, or it's very nice, right? Um, in other, and what is a fable? What's a fable? If a fabulous monster is a monster out of a fable, what is a fable exactly? What is it that makes a monster fabulous in particular? Oh, yeah, Jen Artanis, you can think of a ton of examples of words that have become, uh, you know, words of vague praise or blame um, that used to mean something quite particular. Awesome, of course, is a, a very prominent modern one. Right, a fable is a story with a moral. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yes. Um... A, a, a story with a mortal, mortal. Often there are mortals in them. That's not what I meant. With a moral, um, often animal stories, though not always. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, they are distinct from parables, uh, though parables and fables are similar to each other, for sure. Um, 
but yes, they are stories, often whimsical, sometimes uh, often involving like personified beasts or semi-personified beasts, um, in which you're meant from which you're meant to learn a lesson. Now, don't forget all of the wonderful fun that Lewis Carroll has had at the expense of the like moral poetry of his day, like the kind of fables, the kind of, uh, you know, Victorian morality that children were supposed to be surrounded by, right? Remember all of those wonderful uh, mockeries that he wrote of those uh, in Alice in Wonderland. Um, uh, by far my favorite parts of that book. Um, unicorns are fabulous creatures in this sense. Um, the story about how the unicorn would come and lay its head down in the lap of a virgin. Um, I don't know the exact moral of that fable, but it was used for moral edification, talking about, um, uh, talking about innocence, right? Uh, winning over uh, beasts and things. Um, Alice is a fabulous monster. In Looking Glass World, apparently, um, children are fabulous monsters. That they tell fables? Is it alive? It can talk. Talk, child. Um, And of course, that it's the unicorn saying this. Of all of the creatures she has met, there have been some which are just characters out of nursery rhymes. Um, there are others that have been very peculiar indeed, though I guess most of them she's just been reading about. Um, the people that she's met have mostly been characters, either chess pieces or characters out of, um, uh, out of nursery rhymes. The unicorn is one of the first monsters Right, like a creature from fairy tales, right? A creature from fables um, that uh, that Alice has yet met. Um, I don't know what fables they tell about children in Looking Glass world, but apparently they tell some. Yes. Uh, Mighty Felix, I was thinking about that too. I was just debating as to whether to, to digress onto this, but um, with your permission, I will. Um, Mighty Felix says, is she a daughter of Eve? I absolutely do think that when, especially in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the reaction that people have to the human, you know, uh, especially I'm thinking of the White Queen's encounter with Edmund, um, as well as uh, Mr. Tumnus's encounter with Lucy, right? Are you a child, right? Um, do you mean to say you are a boy? Uh, I absolutely think that um, this scene with the unicorn and Alice, in part, lies behind that. Um, I think, Mighty Felix, that on one level, the story that we get in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe 
um, is an answer to the question. Of course, we, we're never going to find out, right? Lewis Carroll's never going to answer the question um, about uh, um, what are the fables that they tell about children in Looking Glass Land. Um, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we do learn what fables and legends and indeed prophecies they tell um, uh, about uh, um, about children, right, in that world. Um, and the um, yeah. This is a child. We only found it today. Again, if if um, if there if there if there are elements in that that make you think of Narnia, I think you're not. Um, uh, I think you're not wrong. Really, there's a lovely reference to this chapter in the old Incredible Hulk TV show from the 1970s. I have no memory of that Jackrabbit monster. I have no memory at all. I mean, I have lots of memories of the Incredible Hulk TV show from the 70s. Uh, it was uh, still being replayed in the 80s. Um, uh, you're talking about the... Are you talking about... Are you talking about the, like, the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk show? Um, or perhaps Narnia is meant to make us think of this? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think... Um, uh, uh, um, I don't think Narnia is meant to make us think of this. Uh, I think that Lewis is taking this up, basically. Um, I think that there are ways in which both Lewis and Tolkien... Okay. Here's a... Here'd be a fun article to write. I'm giving these away free because I know I'm never gonna have time to write these. It'd be a fun article to write. To say, here's 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 my thesis. My thesis is in their fantasy works, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien took as premises on several occasions throwaway jokes that Lewis Carroll makes in Through the Looking Glass and took them seriously and turned them into stories. Basically. That's, I think, uh, I think that's what's happening in a bunch of places. That, and it's, I think, just backing up from that a second, I think it's one of the things that has made Through the Looking Glass especially such a powerful book over the years. Yes, it's funny. It's very funny. But it manages to be funny while doing so much more. There is so much that is actually stimulating to the imagination that although one could not really call Through the Looking Glass itself a deep work of fantasy, necessarily. It doesn't strive for... You know, you think about what... Even if we use Tolkien's vocabulary from on fairy stories, right? Um, 
even ignoring the appendix entry in which he, which is entirely about uh, Alice and why the Lewis Carroll books don't count as fairy stories. Um, but even apart from that, um, and of course it's the dream apparatus that he is talking about primarily there. But even apart from the dream apparatus issue that Tolkien raises, um, there are a lot of things that Lewis Carroll himself does not seem to be trying to do to create secondary belief, for instance, right? He's not trying to suck us into the story. In fact, the position of the narrator is often pushing us away from the story, right? We don't um, identify with Alice and experience the world alongside Alice. She kind of provi provides us a framework. Um, but I think throughout this story, um, the narrator keeps us very much at a distance. We're watching Alice just as we're watching everybody else. We're not just experiencing this world. We don't have necessarily. I'm not saying nobody has ever had, but I don't think that this book goes very far out of its way to invite that kind of imaginative participation, that kind of secondary belief. Um, it's, and I, I'm not trying to say that it's failing. I'm saying I don't think it's attempting that. And yet... It, there are things in it, and there are ways in which it has proved stimulating to the fantasy imaginations of many others. Um, oh man. Okay, Jackrabbit Monster says The Incredible Hulk episode is called Alice in Disco Land, Season 2, Episode 7. All right. Okay. I'm hitting YouTube right after class, Jackrabbit Monster. I have to see it. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of ways in which I think that this has this work has been instrumental. I mean, it's it is. This book is rarely included as among the like. You know. When people are listing books of like, these are the books that laid the foundations for modern fantasy, right? I'm thinking of, for instance, the Roots of the Mountain course uh, that Douglas Anderson taught in our Signum University MA program, where he was looking at the um, like the earliest fantasy literature and the, you know sort of where the genre had its roots. You know, a lot of people think of Tolkien as the father of the fantasy genre, and that's very true in several important ways. But of course, he didn't invent it, right? He didn't come out of nowhere with Tolkien. Um, where was he getting it from, right? And so, you know, people will instead be going back and looking at. George MacDonald, right? They'll be looking at uh, William Morris. They'll be looking at Lord Dunsany. All really, really important things, right? But, like, in that list, when people are talking about the William Morrises and the George MacDonalds and the Lord Dunsany's, um, they rarely include Through the Looking Glass in that list because it seems like it doesn't fit. It's just a funny kid's book, right? But I think it is every bit one of the cornerstone pieces that led to modern fantasy. E.R. Edison, yes, he was a little closer. He was a little 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 closer to being a contemporary of Lewis and Tolkien. Not not he was a little bit older than they, but he was closer. Um but uh yeah, yeah. Anyway, um so yeah. Okay. How'd I get onto that? 
fabulous monsters. Narnia. Ah, Mighty Felix, it's your fault. Okay, there we go. I, I remember now. Now, can I remember what we were talking about after that? Oh, yeah, I want to come back, Mighty Felix, to your other point about the White Queen. Um, I don't know how many times I read this book before I noticed this. That the things that the White Queen, the funny things that the White Queen says in that chapter all start happening. How Alice can't understand remembering forward, and then we immediately start seeing examples of her remembering forward. Um, and so, like, we, we, we begin to get an understanding of how memory can work both ways, even though it sounded like complete nonsense when the White Queen talked about it. Um, and it seemed also to be quite silly when she was talking about, when she was denying Alice's statement that if something like you, if something is possible you can't believe in it and the white queen was just saying oh, well you're not you're not trying can't you right uh try harder um and that seemed silly and yet once again here we come back to that once more um if you'll believe in me i'll believe in you is that a bargain and alice agrees to it right so there we go. Alice had seated herself on the bank of a little brook with a great dish on her knees, so she has the plum cake, and was sawing away diligently with a knife. It's very provoking, she said in reply to the lion. So the lion, remember, was saying that what a complaining about how long the monster is taking to cut the plum cake and pass it around. Sawing away diligently with a knife. It's very provoking, she said in reply to the lion. She was getting quite used to being called the monster. I've cut several slices already, but they always join on again. You don't know how to manage looking-glass cakes, the lion remarked. Hand it round first, and cut it afterwards. This sounded nonsense, but Alice very obediently got up and carried the dish round, and the cake divided itself into three pieces as she did so. Now cut it up, said the lion, as she returned to her place with the empty dish. I say, this isn't fair, cried the unicorn as Alice sat with the knife in her hand, very much puzzled how to begin. The monster has given the lion twice as much as me. Um, okay. Um, I think this is the first time we've seen Alice's memory working backwards, but I think that this is the first time that Alice herself um, is attempting to live backwards. Attempting to perform an action by the inverted cause and effect that the White Queen was describing. Mighty Felix, exact, I think you have the joke there. Um, he got the he got the lion's share, right, of the cake. Of course, of course, he did get the lion's share, right? Yes, I think that's an unspoken pun, there, Mighty Felix. I think you're quite right. Now, first fish is remembering the logic of the duffel puds, um, which I also suspect to be a Lewis Carroll play as well. 
um, in general, I, 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 I've, I've said, I think that Lewis Carroll is enormously influential on both Lewis and Tolkien. I think Lewis more than Tolkien, or rather, I think it's easier in Lewis. Um, it's easier in Lewis to see the, um, the memories of Lewis Carroll. Tolkien, Tolkien is influenced by many things, but he's, uh, he digests he digests things a good deal more thoroughly uh, before putting them into his own work. Usually, um, there are a couple exceptions to this. The stolen golden cup from the dragon's hoard comes to mind, but uh, not as an Alice in Wonderland reference, of course, but um, as a uh, a less well digested than usual snippet. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Arthur thinks an unspoken pun is a crime against nature. Think about it this way, Arthur. Think of it merely as a pun Lewis Carroll is inviting you to make yourself, right? Um, it's not that he's trying not to speak it. It's that, that, it's that he's sharing it, right, rather than merely making it himself. Um, it's a DIY pun, exactly. Um, well, remember, but even that works as a joke. Remember, that's just how the gnat used to speak, right? It would make a pun, and then it would say, I wish that you had said it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's just how he's treating us here. How delightful. I never thought of that connection at all. Arthur, I blame you. Okay. Um, Alice has no idea how to live backwards. It never occurred to her, for whatever reason, to pass the cake around first and cut it second. When she does cut the, pass the cake around and it works to her surprise, she now is supposed to cut it up as she's instructed by the lion and she has no idea how to cut up the cake that is no longer there, right? Um, and indeed, it's puzzling, right? Um, so it works, but in the end, it doesn't make, it sounds like nonsense to Alice. And when she's sitting there with the empty cake pan on her lap and the knife in her hand, it still seems nonsense, despite the fact that it's already happened, despite the fact uh, that it has already worked. Just as she could not conceptualize how the Looking Glass justice system could work and be justice, right? So she cannot, she cannot grasp what you must do. Which is interesting, isn't it? Interesting because Alice, as we already discussed, is the great pretender, right? You'd think Alice, of all people, might be able to put her mind and imagination in a place where she could uh, imagine how to do such a thing. Um, but notice how even Alice's prodigious imagination 
has been stymied, right? Um, she has found her limits, the limits. She, she can pretend to be any number of people. Uh, she can pretend to be a hungry hyena. Um, but to pretend she's living backwards in this way, she struggles with that, right? She can't, she can't do it. Um, yeah, I agree, Fourth Donna. She does fine living both ways when she doesn't think about it. Like when she's not really realizing the remembering ahead thing. She seems comfortable enough. Oh, well, she's uncomfortable with knowing that Humpty Dumpty's going to fall off. Like she's getting ready to catch him, right? I mean, it makes her anxious because she's, she knows he's going to fall. Um, but, but it doesn't, like, conceptually bother her, right? That she knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, as Fourth Dauntless says, it's trying that makes it not work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But before Alice could answer him, the drums began. Where the noise came from, she couldn't make out. The air seemed full of it, and it rang through and through her head till she felt quite deafened. She started to her feet and sprang across the little brook in her terror, and had just time to see the lion and the unicorn rise to their feet with angry looks at being interrupted in their feast, before she dropped to her knees and put her hands over her ears, vainly trying to shut out the dreadful uproar. And then there's the break, which indicates the crossing of one of the brooks. If that doesn't drum them out of town, she thought to herself, nothing ever will. Okay, um... So, first of all, what does it mean to drum someone out of town? This is rather a uh, literal interpretation of drumming someone out of town. Um, like it's possible when someone is drummed out of a regiment, for instance, that is to say dismissed from the regiment, uh, there may be a ceremony with drums involved, possibly, uh, some sort of formality with drums involved. Um, but because of that, the phrase, um, the phrase just means to kick them out, right? So to drum someone out of town just means to run them off, right? Um, some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town is an ironic line, right? Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown. Looking at, like, just the face meaning of that line, it means some gave them, like, higher quality bread and some lower quality bread. Some gave them plum cake, which is much nicer than any kind of bread. Um, but then also drummed them out of town, right? And also also, you know, gave them the boot at the same time. Um, yeah, riding someone out on a rail can be much more literal. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. But this, of course, is very literal. Um, Alice is... They are all drummed out of town. The lion and the unicorn rise to their feet with angry looks. She doesn't know what they do, but presumably they're going to leave the town. 
um, because the drums are so deafening. Now, Fourth Dauntless, as you point out, Alice herself is the one who's been drummed out of town. Um, given that she is now, as we as has been revealed, a fabulous monster, and also uh, that she is looking for the crown as well, wanting to be queen. It's sort of interesting that she gets included here. Remember, this didn't happen anywhere else. I mean, she uh, took advantage of the opportunity. She was waiting rather impatiently by the end uh, for the Black Crow uh, to come, uh, you know, for the, for, the, for the monstrous crow to come with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Uh, she was uh, she was anxious on Humpty Dumpty's behalf uh, concerning his fall. She almost got, you know, run over uh, by all the king's horses and king's men. But she was never herself involved, right? She was never enmeshed in the actions themselves, as she has been. She's the one who served the plum cake. And remember the song. Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Alice gave them plum cake. She was the one who handed round the plum cake. And so therefore, both the giving of plum cake and the drumming out of town is done by Alice, right? Or like by implication, like that's what we would expect. But that isn't what happens. She gives them plum cake and then she herself is drummed out of town. Dropping to her knee, leaping over the brook, which is presumably a border of the town, um, before she drops to her knees and puts her hands over her ears, trying to shut out the dreadful uproar. And she remarks how thoroughly that drumming is likely to drum them out of town. I think that her repetition of the line there is an indication that she knows that that's a that that's wordplay. That's not exactly what drum them out of town means, right? But she's like, well, those drums had better be sufficient for the job, right? I think that Alice is observing the pun that the story has just made, essentially. Um, so as I say, she has become engaged become a part of this story, of the fulfillment of the song, of the nursery rhyme, in ways that we have not seen her before. And where I'm going to want to be coming back particularly to thinking about this is to see what connections to this there might be when we see Alice become a queen. Um, she is standing in for Lily, the white pawn, um, because Lily is too small. Uh, but her, like, actual integration on the chessboard is a little uncertain. She's moving like a pawn, generally. Um, but when she becomes... A, what's going to happen when she becomes a queen, exactly? What is that going to mean in looking glass terms? Is, there, is something going to change about her and her relationship to this country and these characters? Well, we have to wait and see. First, we get the White Knight. No, first, at the very beginning of chapter 8, we get this passage, 
which is, I think, our third hint about dreams. After a while, the noise seemed gradually to die away, till all was dead silence, and Alice lifted up her head in some alarm. There was no one to be seen, and her first thought was that she must have been dreaming about the lion and the unicorn and those queer Anglo-Saxon messengers. However, there was the great dish still lying at her feet, on which she had tried to cut the plum cake. So I wasn't dreaming after all, she said to herself, unless, unless we're all part of the same dream. Only I do hope it's my dream and not the Red King's. I don't like belonging to another person's dream. She went on in a rather, in a rather complaining tone. I have a great mind to go and wake him and see what happens. This is the, apart from the conversation with Tweedledum and Tweedledee, where they were really pushing this, um, she, uh, this is the first time she has thoroughly contemplated the prospect that this is a dream. Um, the experience of, and it seems to be the kind of line that was crossed, I don't mean the brook that was crossed, I mean, the line that has been crossed the way in, I, I, that last chapter, her engagement with the lion and the unicorn was fundamentally different than her engagement with the other queer creatures. She ha was a part of things. She was a part of the, again, she's the one who gave them plum cake, right? Um, that hadn't happened before. And now she's not merely finding these i mean look the lion the unicorn and the anglo-saxon messengers are not more queer than say the looking glass insects earlier on right um i mean i think that those i think the bread and butterfly is at least as strange as the anglo-saxon messengers and a good deal stranger than the lion and the unicorn even if the unicorn is somehow bipedal and has hands that he puts in his pockets um, so, oh, and by the way, I meant to say the fact that he had hands that he put in his pocket, that he was so thoroughly anthropomorphized as that by that one apparent reference, um, seems connected with him being a fabulous monster, right? Like the animals in fables you're supposed to interpret as being people in order to understand what the fable is and what the lesson is you're trying to be taught. And so the unicorn is already like acting like a human, right? Like you're supposed to interpret him as a human, just like you would a monster in a fable. Um, but anyway, okay. So, um, this, so uh, this new experience that she's had, um, leads her to think she must have been dreaming. We've not gotten anything that strong before. She must have been dreaming about the lion and the unicorn. What led her to think for a moment about dreaming was the strange transitions between scenes in uh, Wool and Water, right? When the, she suddenly finds herself in a store, and then she suddenly finds herself on a boat, and then she suddenly finds herself back in the store, and then the furniture starts turning into trees, right? That's when it begins to feel like a dream to her. And now she is saying much more explicitly she must have been dreaming about that. And partly that's because of another dream transition that has happened. Right? The drums happen, she puts her hands over her ears and closes her eyes and then it's all gone. Right? When she um, when she looks up. 
though there are counter indicators to that. There's the great dish. The plum cake dish is still lying at her feet. So it seems like it wasn't a dream. It didn't just fade away like a dream. But notice even that, notice what that itself suggests. She's That suggests that she's wondering whether the lion and the unicorn sequence itself was a dream within this whole experience that she's having. That here now, she's still in Looking Glass Land and she knows it. But is she just now waking up from a dream that she had where she dreamed about the lion and the unicorn? Or is the entire experience a dream? If the entire experience were a dream, seeing the plum cake pan at her feet would not in any way counter, be, wouldn't be any sort of counterindication of that, now would it? Right? It would just be a part of the dream that she was still dreaming. Oh, then I do hope it's my dream and not the Red King's, she says. And I think she's joking, but she's uncomfortable with this idea. Because to question the broader thing, it might seem the simplest thing of all to say, maybe this entire story has been a dream. Maybe I fell asleep with my kittens back in my nursery, and I've been dreaming this whole time. But she doesn't suggest that. She suggests, theory number one, that segment I just went through was a dream. Oh, no, it can't be. There's the plum cake pan. Um, and also, she then says, well, maybe, maybe this is the Red King's dream, right? She raises that question about whether it's the Red, the Red King's dream. And remember what that idea points to. So one theory is the very small theory that she's just, just the lion and the unicorn segment was a dream. The other is the enormous, huge theory that her entire life is a dream and that she's not real at all, but she's only a thing in the Red King's dream. That's Tweedledum and Tweedledee's assertion, right? That she's not real at all. Um, the I fell asleep in the nursery playing with my kittens and have been dreaming this whole uh, looking glass experience would certainly be comforting compared with that. But she doesn't seem to explicitly entertain that. However, she does have a mind to go and wake the Red King and see what happens. Will she vanish when the Red King awakes? Is she just a, th a sort of thing in the Red King's dream? Well, we don't know yet. Um, but this first time that she is explicitly considering the relation, you know, the potential dreamlike nature of her experience. Her analysis is really interesting here, and she never even raises the one possibility that seems to us most intuitive. And I think it's important for us to notice this. That is not on Alice's radar screen. Okay. Let me get the white knight. I love the White Knight. I said at the end of class last time that the White Knight uh, might be my favorite character uh, in Through the Looking Glass. He was dressed in tin armor, which seemed to fit him very badly, and he had a queer-shaped little deal box fastened across his shoulders, upside down, and with the lid hanging open. Alice looked at it with great curiosity. I see you're admiring my little box, the knight said in a friendly tone. It's my own invention. 
to keep clothes and sandwiches in. You see, I carry it upside down so that the rain can't get in. But the things can get out, Alice gently remarked. Do you know the lid's open? I didn't know it, the knight said with a shade of vexation passing over his face. Then all the things must have fallen out, and the box is no use without them. He unfastened it as he spoke, and was just going to throw it into the bushes, when a sudden thought seemed to strike him, and he hung it carefully on a tree. "'Can you guess why I did that?' he said to Alice. Alice shook her head. "'In hopes some bees may make a nest in it. Then I should get the honey.' "'What's going on with the White Knight? Like, where even are we?' Uh, in this chapter, what what is the deal with the White Knight and his deal box? So, okay. On the one hand, the comical helmet and armor uh, of the knights, the comically patient horses, and the bad riding all can be explained by the chess connection. The helmet and the the like so the, like the awkwardness of helmet and armor and patience of the horse would seem to be a reference to the knight itself, right? Like the horse head figure. Um, they have huge horse head helmets, um, and uh, and the the horses are very patient because of course they they spend a lot of time standing around doing nothing uh, and not moving at all. Um, so I suppose for horses, they are very patient. Um, the bad riding... Well, I don't know if that's exactly explained by the chess piece, by the fact that we're you know, talking about chess pieces. Um, but we sh- certainly should be remembering what Alice wrote in the White King's memorandum book back at the beginning of her Looking Glass house experience. Uh, when she was seeing that the white knight bounced on the poker very badly, right? Um, and I wonder, JJ, if his inventiveness and in going off on these side discussions have to do with knights not being able to move in straight lines. I don't know. I mean, certainly he's kind of digressive and has strange and random thoughts. He certainly does not move in straight lines, mentally speaking. But the... What? Overactivity of his mind? Not to mention the... um, How can we say? Ineptitude of his ideas? Um, He's very rarely successful in his inventiveness. And that I have a hard time understanding from a chess piece perspective. Nor does it obviously seem to fit in any of the other major themes and patterns that we've been noticing throughout. We've been interested in things like cause and effect. That's been, you know, coming to uh, cause and effect, um, names and things, the way words work, um, uh, you know, living backwards, remembering backwards, all of these things. Um, These are all things that we have been invited, I would argue, to think about, uh, to think about repeatedly throughout this book. But what about the inventiveness of the night? What do you make of this? 
The White Knight certainly does not live backwards. He certainly does not remember ahead like the White Queen does. Um, which is in its way a little surprising, isn't it? Um, because, of course, when the White Queen is talking to Alice and saying to her, noting how Alice only lives forwards and the White and the Queen can live both directions, the chess reference is obvious, right? Pawns only move in one direction, but queens can move in every way. So that tracks, right? But knights can move in many directions as well, and don't seem, seem as sort of limited as this. Um, knights are the only chess pieces that can jump. Well, I'm not sure that he is jumping to conclusions, though. Um, it's my own invention is the title of the chapter, if I'm remembering correctly, and certainly a very characteristic saying of the White Knight. It's my own invention. So it's not just about... He's not merely leaping to conclusions, like being rash in, in thinking what things might mean. Like, if he were rashly interpreting things, I might think that he was... It was about jumping, right, to conclusions. But that's not his deal. His deal is invention. Finding useful things to do with things. So he made a little box, a useful box for putting things in, clothes and sandwiches and such. And then he improved upon his box backpack invention by carrying it upside down so that the rain can't get in, which makes it perfect. Because now he can keep his clothes and sandwiches, and he can also keep them dry. So it's now twice as valuable as it was before, except now it's not valuable at all, because it easily, you know, the rain can't get in, but the things can get out. As Alice gently points out, that the lid is open, and that the box is no use without them. He immediately concludes, right? So having attempted... To, well, it's not exactly a two times zero situation for Thoughtless. It's, um, he is, he is adding on more useful elements until he ends up with something <clears throat> altogether useless as a result, right? I mean, it, it is, it would be useful to keep clothes and sandwiches in a box like that. And it would also be useful to keep the rain from getting in. That's a good idea. That would be useful. But by doing the thing that will keep the rain out, he undermines the entire purpose of the entire thing and renders the box completely useless. However unfazed, instead of merely chuck, He's not a guy who's just going to chuck a perfectly good deal box into the bushes. He is going to... And by the way, it was many years before I learned what a deal box was. That, um... I... I, I didn't... The only association as a child I had with the word deal was in card games. And so I thought for a long time that a deal box 
had something to do with cards. Like, I think I had a vague idea when I was a kid that it meant like a box for putting cards in. Um, you know, that like you would open up and take out the cards so you could deal them. Right. I think that was my, my vague impression that I had when I was, when I was a kid. Um, uh, not referring to the substance it's made, it's made from. It's, um, kind of wood. Um, but, um, okay. Um, yeah, a kind of cheap wood. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is as, as I understand anyway. Um, but, um, okay. But what does he do? He hangs it carefully upon a tree in hopes that some bees may make a nest in it. And then I should get the honey. Now, that doesn't seem terribly likely, but it's some good will come of it. Usefulness, practicality, that everything should have some function seems to be the way that he thinks. Again, my question is, what does this have to do with anything with the rest of this book? Alice points out, but you've got a beehive or something like one fastened to the saddle, said Alice. Yes, it's a very good beehive, the knight said in a discontented tone. One of the best kind, but not a single bee has come near it yet. And the other thing is a mouse trap. I suppose the mice keep the bees out, or the bees keep the mice out. I don't know which. I was wondering what the mouse trap was for, said Alice. It isn't very likely there would be any mice on the horse's back. Not very likely, perhaps, said the knight. But if they do come, I don't choose to have them running all about. You see, he went on after a pause, it is all, it's as well to be provided for everything. That's the reason the horse has all those anklets round his feet. But what are they for? Alice asked in a tone of great curiosity. To guard against the bites of sharks, the knight replied. It's an invention of my own. And now help me on. I'll go with you to the end of the wood. What's that dish for? It's meant for plum cake, said Alice. We'd better take it with us, the knight said. It'll come in handy if we find any plum cake. Help me to get it into this bag. The pattern... I don't know. I mean, it seems relatively clear. It's as well to be provided for everything. He's going to take precautionary measures. No, it's not very likely that there will be many mice on the back of the horse. But if they do come, I don't choose to have them running all about. Uh, it is not stated explicitly, and yet I think we can all agree um, that his horse is unlikely uh, to experience the bites of many sharks while walking through the woods on solid ground. But should in the admittedly unlikely event of a uh, an arboreal shark attack the horse's ankles are provided notice the implication there um the anklets they would assuming for a moment that the anklets that he has put around his horse's feet 
would indeed be efficacious in warding off shark bites. So let's just assume that for a minute. Because um, who am I to question the efficacy of an invention of the White Knights? So let us assume that those anklets would indeed be most effective uh, in uh, guarding against the bites of sharks. Under what circumstances? What, only if the sharks were biting the feet of the horses? Which suggests that sharks are going to be swimming in the land, might come up beneath the horse, through the land, and attempt to bite his feet from underneath, like they might if he were, you know, walking along the surface of the water or something, right? Um, so that's... Um, that moves it one step beyond merely unlikely, right? Um, yeah, mole sharks, maybe. Um, Edith, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I... It's rather strange. It is conceivable, JJ, that he is imagining there might be sharks in the streams. And so when the... When the only water the horse goes through is ankle deep, and so therefore the anklets will protect it from the bite of any shark that might be in the ankle deep water of the streams. That's also possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and if they are Edith, very tiny sharks, then indeed the anklets may in fact be quite efficacious in guarding against their bites. But in context, that is in the immediate context of the mousetrap discussion and the knight's simultaneous confession that it is not in fact very likely that there would be mice uh, on the horse's back, but that if they do come, I don't choose to have them running all about, right? He is going to be prepared against even unlikely eventualities, such as a murine infestation of his horse's saddle, right? Um... Sorry, that makes me smile remembering one of those domestic sagas of the mouse that took up residence inside my son Nicholas's booster seat one time. Um, we only had room for one car in the garage in Delaware, and my car was out in the driveway all the time. And we had mice all the time. They were making nests like underneath the car constantly. Um, one of them ate the, ate the radiator once. But um, anyway, uh, a mouse got in and made a... a, a <laughs> was living inside the hollow plastic booster seat of my son. And um, there was this whole story of trying to uh, get him out. <laughs> but anyway. Um, so you never know. You never know what, it is. what I'm saying. I can get behind the white knight on this one. You might need a mousetrap up there. You just never know. Um, all I'll say is trying to encourage a mouse to come out of a car seat is harder than you might think. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. Um, uh, okay. Anyhow. Um, I even filled it up with water. No dice. 
Anyhow, um, okay. It was a fun memory, Carrie. It also involved that that mouse had quite an escapade, actually. It actually managed to get into the house. And then we trapped it in a room <laughs> where it lived for a couple of days. This is this whole thing. It was like a week, uh, a week saga of like us against that mouse. We finally caught it. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, by the way, and then I found when I was trying to empty it out um, that uh, Nikos had been sticking pieces of candy <laughs> inside the car seat. Uh, whatever. Okay. This is where Tevildo comes in, Edith. Well, see, unfortunately, we have always been a cat-free home as uh, my wife is uh, deathly allergic to cats. So um, we um, did not have the customary assistance there. Uh, in uh, Catching the Mouse. Okay. Um, notice the knight's reaction to the plum cake pan. The, the, the plum cake dish. What's that dish for? It's meant for plum cake. We'd better take it with us. It'll come in handy if we find any plum cake. I don't know where coming across a plum cake in the wild ranks on the probability scale with a mouse infestation, a mouse infestation of the back of the horse. But, um, but again, clearly it's as well to be provided for everything. Right. Um, yeah. Now, like I said, I don't really get the pattern here. So I'm hoping we can, we can sort of figure it out. Why, what's he up to? How does it work? I'm sure there's an answer. Um, he tells Alice to hold on to her hair because the wind is very strong, strong as soup, he points out. Um, have you invented a plan for keeping the hair from being blown off? Alice inquired. Not yet, said the knight, but I've got a plan for keeping it from falling off. I should like to hear it very much. First, you take an upright stick, said the knight. Then you make your hair creep up it like a fruit tree. Now the reason hair, now the reason hair falls off is because it hangs down. Things never fall upwards, you know. It's a plan of my own invention. You may try it if you like. It didn't sound a comfortable plan, Alice thought, and for a few minutes she walked on in silence, puzzling over the idea, and every now and then stopping to help the poor knight, who certainly was not a good rider. Okay, so his argument is, his invention, hair falls off because it hangs down. So if you train your hair to grow up an upright stick, then it won't fall off. Because if it's going up, things don't fall upwards, and so therefore it won't fall off. It, you know, your hair won't fall off. And Alice's thought, after much puzzling over the idea, is that it doesn't sound like a comfortable plan. No, it doesn't sound like a comfortable plan. Um, here we do get what seems to me to be some... Um, 
uh, to be some odd cause and effect reasoning on the part of the knight. If your hair is growing upwards, then it cannot fall out because the cause of falling off is gravity. That is known, right? That's why things fall because of gravity. Things fall down because of gravity. So if it's growing up, it can't fall off because gravity is not pulling it down. Now, this doesn't seem to me like the same kind of issue with cause and effect that others have had. I mean, that seems good as far as it goes, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that Alice is puzzling over it is that if it's, if you make your hair, your hair creep up an upright stick like a fruit tree does, well, then the stick would have to be in the ground and then you couldn't go anywhere, right? You'd just be stuck to the stick. And so that doesn't, um, doesn't seem at all comfortable. Maybe you could attach the upright stick to your own head. Um, yeah, yeah. Fourth Dauntless, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says this is perfectly normal, though childlike reasoning. Yes, it does. I, I mean, the cause and effect reasoning here is a little odd, but I don't think the problem is with cause and effect, not in the same way that we've seen before, about like what we've tended to see has been effects coming before causes or effects that don't have any causes. The breaking down of the connection between cause and effect is what we've primarily observed in other places in Looking Glass Land. The White Knight's idea does not destroy cause and effect. It exploits cause and effect, in fact. Right? I'm not saying I think it's necessarily a universal baldness cure, but but it doesn't undermine cause and effect in the same way. I'm afraid you've not had much practice in writing, she ventured to say, as she was helping him up from his fifth tumble. The knight looked very much surprised and a little offended at the remark. "'What makes you say that?' he asked, as he scrambled back into the saddle, keeping hold of Alice's hair with one hand to save himself from falling on the other side. "'Because people don't fall off quite so often, when they've had much practice.' "'I've had plenty of practice,' the knight said very gravely. "'Plenty of practice.' Alice could think of nothing better to say than... Indeed. <laughs> but she said it as heartily as she could. I love that line. <laughs> Alice is a very polite girl, right? She could, think, she could think of nothing better to say than indeed. But she said it as heartily as she could. They went on a little way in silence after this, the knight with his eyes shut, muttering to himself, and Alice watching anxiously for the next tumble. Um... Yeah. Um, the knight is offended at the idea that he doesn't have much practice. Alice's reasoning seems fairly sound. If the art of writing is, if not falling off the horse, 
is the first goal of writing, right? The sort of preliminary step um, upon which all other elements of the art of writing really are uh, premised, right? And that seems to be what Alice is assuming. Um, then the more practice one has in the art of writing, the more successfully one might be expected to remain on the horse. Um, people don't fall off quite so often when they've had much practice. I've had plenty of practice, plenty of practice. Don't you get the sense that maybe they're not talking about the same thing here? Um, hang on a second. No, okay. Um, it's one of the things that I love. One of my favorite things about the knight is just how he keeps he keeps falling off the horse and from like the ditch. We'll say plenty of practice, and we begin to get the impression. I think. What has he had plenty of practice at? He's had plenty of practice in falling off the horse. He's really good at it. I mean, this guy has mastered the art of falling off this horse. Right? I mean, here he is displaying his mastery, and she's questioning whether he's had much practice in writing. It would seem that the, the difference, right, the um, distinction between what the two of them are saying lies in the fact that, of her assumption, that the more practice you have writing, the less often you fall off. And that is um, not, not necessarily true, right? Um, apparently not necessarily true. I mean, this knight is very practiced. Fort Dauntless says, Alice and the knight make the same error. They draw a logical conclusion from a flawed premise. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Alice doesn't get it. Alice doesn't get it. No, I'm not going to do the fastness yet. Well, yes, I will. One more slide. The knight looked down proudly at his helmet, which hung from the saddle. Yes, he said. So she was just admiring his helmet, trying to change the subject. But I've invented a better one than that, like a sugar loaf. When I used to wear it, if I fell off the horse, it always touched the ground directly. So I had a very little way to fall, you see. But there was the danger of falling into it, to be sure. That happened to me once, and the worst of it was, before I could get out again, the other white knight came and put it on. He thought it was his own helmet. The knight looked so solemn about it that Alice did not dare to laugh. I'm afraid you must have hurt him, she said in a trembling voice, being on the top of his head. I had to kick him, of course, the knight said very seriously. And then he took the helmet off again, but it took hours and hours to get me out. 
I was as fast as, as lightning, you know. But that's a different kind of fastness, Alice objected. The knight shook his head. It was all kinds of fastness with me, I can assure you, he said. He raised his hands in some excitement as he said this, and instantly rolled out of the saddle and fell headlong into a deep ditch. Oh man, I just love the White Knight. It was all kinds of fastness with me, I can assure you, is my favorite line of the White Knight. Um, <laughs> it was all kinds of fastness with me. Oh... I love it. This is the second time that he has used an adjective comparatively and inappropriately. As fast as lightning, I was as fast as lightning stuck in the helmet, and I and the wind is as strong as soup. Um, that's a different kind of strongness, right? Uh, Surely the wind isn't strong in the same way that a soup might be strong. Um, nor was the knight as fast in the helmet as lightning is fast. It is indeed a different kind of fastness. But the way that that triggers the knight to say it was all kinds of fastness, um, that, of course, was a figure of speech. It was all kinds of blank, right? Um, is a 19th century figure of speech to say that, you know, it's a superlative, right? Um, uh, you know, I was all kinds of merry at that party or that kind of thing. Um, yes, uh, Carrie, I was, um, I was, I was this close to making a fasting from food pun in my title um, uh, but I couldn't get one that worked perfectly so I, I gave up on it on the to celebrate the all kinds of fastness um, yeah yeah um, I'm not sure ex I, I assume it would be a strong tasting soup um, and I'm sure that there are many kinds of soup that are very strong tasting especially given <laughs> many of the frankly nasty things uh, that they used to make soup out of sometimes. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, the knight's turn, it was all kinds of fastness with me, uh, is, just, is just delightful. But that linguistic mistake... His misapplication of the adjective fast um, mistaking one kind of fastness for another, and no, oh no, not that kind of fastness, Edith, uh, like Angband. That's a different kind of fastness entirely. Um, anyway, his mistaking of one kind of fastness for another, as he appears to be mistaking one kind of strongness for another, um, is... Um, is an interesting clue, I think. I'm pretty sure it's a clue to understand the White Knight's deal and what is up with him and what's going on in this chapter. I haven't figured out what that clue means yet, but I'm pretty sure it's a clue. I'm pretty sure it's a clue. 
nor am I quite sure what to do with the wonderful story of him falling into his own helmet and the other white knight coming and putting him on. Putting on another man's helmet with the other man still in it. <laughs> As he's going to go on and complain and to complain of uh, uh, <laughs> rather indignantly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am. I struggle with the White Knight. I love this character. I find him delightful um, in ways that I don't find. It's interesting. I, I love this book and I find this book delightful, but I find many of its characters individually unpleasant. Humpty Dumpty is supposed to be an unpleasant character, but there are many of the characters I don't like. The White King and the White Knight are two of my favorites. Um, the White Knight is my favorite character, but I, I don't think I understand him. Um, and I'm not sure I'm tracking with what's going on in this, uh, with what's going on in this chapter. But fortunately, um, so I've kind of been pushing through a bunch of passages here just to try to get us more data so we can see more and more clearly what might be going on. But fortunately, we are in luck because we have that long poem coming up. And the White Knight's poem, uh, his song, unlike the poems, the other poems that Alice has heard recited to her, is about himself. So we will get much more information from the White Knight in his, uh, in his song, which is about himself. And the... Um, your homework assignment for next time um, is to look up the tune. We're told the tune of the song, so you know what that means. That means we have to have a sing-along next time. So we're going to have a sing-along next time of the White Knight's song, and so you have to go and find the tune of that song so that you can sing along with me. Okay, we'll have a sing-along of the White Knight song uh, and we'll discuss it. And maybe this will help us to draw some conclusions about the White Knight for next time. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Um, I, we should be able to meet next week. So when I say next time, uh, I do mean and hope and intend that it shall be next week. I know no reason why that shan't happen. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you guys next week and then I'll be away the next week. So the week between Christmas and New Year's I'll be away, so no broadcasts at all that week. Yes, I'll be sure to watch The Hulk. Season 2, Episode 7, you said, Jack Rabbit, right? Alright. Um, very good. Episode 7, Season 2. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to go watch The Incredible Hulk now. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye now. <laughs>